All right. Thanks, GC, for sharing that. Um, I love this. We love it. Every year we look forward to doing this. Um, along with that, uh, and as we turn to First uh, Chronicles this morning, uh, you can start turning there in your Bibles now if you want to, and then we'll pray. But First um, uh, Chronicles 21 is where we'll be this morning, just one chapter. Um, just wanted to let you know, Harvest Party's coming up. We are going to have it, full swing, all the inflatables. Um, and, and all this year, and and the guy assured me we are coming to set up regardless because last year they canceled on us um, because they thought there was going to be snow and and then there was no snow and people were disappointed. So this year he says we will set up. I said good. We need to know that. So with that being said, there's a sign up sheet in the back for those of you who want to volunteer and help during that time um, that night, uh, October 31st. It's from three to nine uh, p.m. Um, there'll be two-hour sessions. You can sit out at one of the inflatables for two hours, make sure the kids are taking their shoes off and so on and making sure they're being safe. Um, and then you'll switch off like at five or, or whenever the next you know handoff is and someone else will take over for you. Um, and I'll warn you, the evening sessions, if you go from five to eight, are chilly. So you'll want to you know dress appropriately if you're going to stand out there you know, and, and make sure kids are bouncing. Because the kids are bouncing and you're not. So... They're plenty sweaty and good to go, but the, the watchers tend to get uh, a little chilly. Also, the, we're having a cakewalk, so you can make your cake, and there's a competition for the best decorated cake. We've decided to take off the, the best-tasting cake, so the best decorated cake wins. Uh, so bring cakes, cupcakes, things like that, decorated in really fun, creative ways. Um, and then soups, there's a soup sign up because that's kind of our main food. We have hot dogs, of course, but soups are out there and, and you just bring your own soup, whatever your favorite, your specialty is, sign up, let us know you're bringing it uh, so we know what's coming. And then there's also a setup crew from 11 to 1 that day on Saturday. And then there's also teardown crew, which helps set us up for Sunday morning. We have to get it all cleaned up and all ready for the services the next morning. So if you can't do anything and you want to just swing back by at the end of the night around 9 o'clock, you can help us tear down, clean up, sweep, mop, all the things that have to be done there. So um, lots of opportunities to serve. So that's those sign-up sheets are out there um, to take a look at. All right, First uh, Chronicles 21, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and letting us uh, come together to worship you in spirit and truth as a family, as your family. And we pray that you're blessed. As we study your word, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts as JC prayed, that we'd receive everything you have with gladness, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would quicken your word to our hearts. And what we mean by that, Lord, you know that we just want to understand it. We want to apply it. We want to get it to the point where it's, it doesn't have to be memorized or forced. It's just kind of, oh, it's just that oh moment uh, when your word just really is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to get right to the heart of the matter. And that's our heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. David decides to count the people this morning. And this is the first time we see the word Satan in the Bible. It kind of shocked me at first. I mean, I've gone through the Bible several times, but as you begin, you read, now Satan stood up against Israel. It kind of jumps off the page. Who's this guy? We know him as the serpent. We know him as the dragon, Lucifer, the devil, lots of different names for him. But this time he's called Satan. It's the first time in the Bible he's called that. And it says that Satan stood up against Israel. He's not happy. Satan is always attacking Israel, still is always attacking Israel, and any attack against Israel is still satanic. I can't emphasize that enough. 
Anytime there's an attack against Israel, it's still satanic. Even though we've had our Messiah born, even though he has died on the cross and rose from the dead, there are still prophecies concerning Israel that Satan would just rather not come to pass. And so he constantly attacks the apple of God's eye, which is Israel. So we always want to guard our hearts so we don't ever listen to those voices in the world, and they may have great reasons or excuses. Look, that's between God and Israel what happens. If God wants to punish them, he can punish them, and he does today. But that's between him and Israel. has nothing to do with me. It says the nation that blesses Israel will be blessed, and the nation that curses Israel will be cursed, and that's all I need to know. How judgment happens as far as the nation of Israel goes, that's between them and God. So when I see the words here, now Satan stood up against Israel, anybody standing up against Israel, that's just, I know exactly what that spirit is of or where they're coming from. Whether they do or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, I know that's someone that I don't want to align myself with or should because they are governed by Satan. Here's how he does it, though. Look what Satan does. And moved David to number Israel. And I've said that many times. It's like a little proverb that I created, I think. It's uh, anybody that can be stirred by Satan will be stirred by Satan. When we're in that place of flesh, we have the opportunity to be moved by Satan if he wants us to be moved. He never makes us do things, but he can sure throw out ideas and he can sure throw out bait for us. He can sure play upon our pride like he does David or any other fleshy emotion that comes up in our lives. And that's how he divides. God is, or Satan is trying to drive a wedge between the nation of Israel and between him and their, or them and their God. And this is how he's going to do it. He's going to move David to number Israel. I want you to count them. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know. And Joab answered, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Even Joab, who isn't the most spiritual guy in the world, recognizes this is a threat and a danger and shouldn't take place, and at least voices his opinion, at least puts it out there. David, you know, I understand and I get it. I hope there are a hundred more than you hope there ever were, but let's, let's not count. Something about counting them, and I think we might have touched upon it earlier when we realized that they're God's sheep and not ours. He can count them when he wants to count them. And a couple times, God does do that. Let's count the people. But only for his sake. Only for the, when he wants to, because they're, he's the owner. When David wants to count them, there seems to be, and we don't know because it doesn't tell us, but there seems to be some struggle here between their mind. No, you're a, as, a, as a king of Israel, you're a servant of Israel. And Jesus forever tried to get that point across to his disciples. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant of all. And then he washed their feet, including Judas's feet, including the one that was going to betray him, and he knew he was going to betray him. Jesus was the servant of all, wrapping himself in the loincloth and washing their feet when no one else had done it. And I don't know that he wanted anybody else to do it. He truly, 
It, it wasn't a, a spiteful thing the way that story reads. He's not looking around saying nobody else is washing feet. I guess I have to do it. Well, that would really defeat the purpose or the point of his message or, or story here. I'm trying to show you that the king of the universe can wash feet and doesn't mind. It's okay. I'd love to be your servant. In fact, I'm going to serve you so much, I'm going to die for you while you're my enemies and, and so on. I'm going to make sure that your eternity is okay by serving you at the cross. If there's any other way for these people to be saved, let this cup pass from me. And yet, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I'd rather not go to the cross. I'd rather find another way. But if there's no other way for these people to be saved, I will serve them at the cross. And he does. David is a caretaker. He's to be a a servant of the people. He's not there to gain glory or to take ownership or to use them as his minions. I mean, Joab says they are your servants, but they're not. They're God's servants, but they do serve the leadership, of course. There's nothing you can do about that. That's the way the structure is. That's the way God designed it. But don't count them. That, you're taking ownership then. Um, this Satan, which we don't hear about him anymore, he just plants the seed. He just gets the inertia going, you know, just Push this, that gets the momentum going in the right direction, and he steps back and lets pride take its course, lets the flesh take its course. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I'll try to break it down for you. We have three adversaries. It's the world, the flesh, the devil, or Satan. And here's what it says in verse 1, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. And those are our three then. We've run the course of the world. We're under the influence and can be under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. And we often conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as uh, the others. Those are our three adversaries. And oftentimes we get confused uh, as to, well, the devil made me do it, some would say, or I was under the influence of a spirit. Um, This is a great example of what it looks like, spiritually speaking, this spiritual warfare that we're in. I have something in me, an appetite for sin, that causes me to take the bait. But all Satan can do is fish for me. He can't make me do anything. As a child of God, as a believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, if I'm walking in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I don't take the bait. I'm satisfied. I'm full. I'm not starving to death. I'm not hungry. Those fleshly appetites have been subdued, you know. But if I'm not walking in the Spirit and I'm walking in the flesh, that bait that's out there all the time, I might take because I'm hungry enough. Because I'm not on guard. I'm not paying attention. 1 Corinthians 10.10 tells us how to defeat this. No temptation has overtaken you. That's bait by Satan. Such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape. 
that you may be able to bear it. What's the way of escape here? It's his friend Joab. That voice of reason. It isn't always an actual physical place to run to. Oftentimes, it's just a, another voice. I've got this idea that I should do this. Well, you could, but maybe that's not the best choice. In fact, maybe that would bring guilt upon all of Israel. I think we should just let it be whoever they are. We're worshiping God. The ark's back in the tabernacle. or actually on the high places. We're, we're doing wonderful things. We've had a lot of victory we're at the pinnacle of our relationship with God and geographic domain. We, we own the turf. Why are we doing this? And that's a lot of the commentators' questions. They start off with, why would David do this? And then they try to answer it. And I don't think you need to have the answer. I think the question is, all that needs to be said is, why, David? In other words, there's no reason to. Not, what is your motives, David? I don't care about your motives. Just why are we doing it anyway? What, what is it going to serve? How is a number going to accomplish anything? And what is that information in your head? How is that going to change our relationship with God or our wonderful success in battle? How is this going to make a difference? What's the purpose behind this? Why? So that voice of reason is God's way of escape for David. And he could have said, oh, yeah, 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 you're right, Joab. Thanks, you know, that would have been bad, you know. And I don't know that we know why it's so bad. I don't know that I understand God's heart completely on the matter because he's going to take out 70,000 people because of it to reduce the numbers. I don't understand why it's that bad, but it is that bad to God. He gives him three options, which we'll get to here in a minute. Anyway, 1 Corinthians tells us God always provides us with a way out. Fine, you're in the flesh. There's that bait. There will be that witness of the Holy Spirit, another voice, an opportunity to escape from that temptation, even after you might have taken the bait. Don't, don't spit it out. Just spit it out, you know. And it's up to us to take these options. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, tells us about how to get things started or get ourselves prepared for that inevitable spiritual battle we all have to face. Satan doesn't stop tempting us. He doesn't stop throwing out bait. And so that we know that this morning, how do I prepare myself for when that bait swings by my face and I'm in the flesh? It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, which is all this is. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David. I want to make myself immovable. I have to take every precaution to make sure because Satan is no match for me or the other way around. I'm no match for him. He's very powerful. He's has so many more in his bag of tricks, and I do. I have to truly trust God's word. And he says, put on the full armor of God. You're going to need it against the wiles of the devil. Make sure that you listen and look for that way of escape when you're tempted and take it, but it is a choice. I have to listen to those things. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is a real battle. It's a real battle. 
We'll talk a little bit about that after verse 17, about how that battle rages in most of us. I think we would be shocked if we were ever to be able to truly see the battle around us. Shocked at how we are permeated and that there are clashing swords all around us all the time. And there are probably things bouncing off our helmet of salvation that we don't even recognize anymore. We just think it's just another bad Monday or something when actually we're being conked, you know? Why I keep getting, I keep tripping up today. I keep falling down. I keep whatever. This keeps happening. You're under attack. I think we'd be surprised. We get glimpses of it, and I think we're getting a glimpse of it right now. We get a little glimpse into um, the actual manifestation of these forces in the dark, these hidden things that would prefer not to be noticed and just counted as coincidence or counted as, well, that's just the way life is kind of thing, or that's just a karma or whatever they want to use today for terms to describe these things. Once in a while, I believe the veil gets pulled back and we're able to see this is obviously demonic. I don't know why we're afraid to call it what it is. This is obviously demonic. We act like that's some crazy word that Christians of old used to say. You can't say they're demonic. We have to say they have a uh, they have a mental disorder, or that they have this or that, or they're just got anger issues. Or no, this is obviously demonic in nature. Anybody that can be stirred by Satan will be stirred by Satan. And when you're walking in the flesh, David or otherwise, we're susceptible to these to losing these battles that are spiritual in our marriages, in the raising of our kids, at our work. Just in life in general. Joab, that voice of reason, says, just let's not make Israel guilty. Nevertheless, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab. He had some reason, some excuse for doing it. Yeah, I hear you, Joe, but it's not like that. I'm not counting, and I don't know what was said, but his word prevailed. It wasn't like they had a shouting match, but he just said, no, 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 I'm not... I'm not doing it for that or whatever. There's a reason for it. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. Those are just the fighters. That's his army. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword, but he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them. And here's why. For the king's word was abominable to Joab. Hated every minute of the counting. That's a tough spot to be in. This may have been the turning point for Joab. This may have been the point where, you know, David is a... We congregated to David when he was in the wilderness because he was such an upright guy. And we were so tired of all the garbage going on in Saul's administration. We clung to, oh, this is wonderful. Now, we don't know how to be upright guys, but we're going to stay as close to this upright guy as we can. And we're going to do better. We're going to fight them. Then we're going to fight them. And they just did exactly what David led them to do. And they're learning and they're growing. And they're growing close to the Lord as David worships. But this, Joab said, this isn't, this is out of character for you. This isn't what we normally see. They can sense it. Leadership's a tough place to be in, whether it's in the home or at work or in a church. 
Because David doesn't see it. David doesn't know it. David thinks it's a good idea to count. David doesn't know he's being stirred by Satan, but Joab can recognize it. Joab's saying, this is out of character. This isn't the way we've always been going. This is a different course. This is a different plan. I don't understand this. Don't do this. I wonder how many times Joab's ever said that to David. Don't, don't do this next thing. I bet it's always been, you bet. I mean, at one point, even the prophet gets excited about David's holiness and his ability to hear from the Lord and says, David, you can do whatever's on your heart. And God pulled the prophet aside and said, Nathan, no, 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 he can't do whatever's on his heart. Oh, okay, I'll go tell him. The people around David were so enamored with him. They could do no wrong, you know. But Joab had enough guts to stand up and say, David, this is going to make us all guilty. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and counted everybody, but hated every bit of it. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It's repentance and it's honest. I mean, it's after the fact. It's after God started to strike them in some way. We don't exactly know how because he's going to give them three options here. But he began to strike Israel. David recognizes it's because he counted And he says, I have sinned. He confesses his sin before the Lord. I have done this thing. It's wrong what I did. There's no, I'm not trying to sweep it under the rug. I'm not trying to make excuses for it. It's wrong. But now that I've admitted it and I know that it's wrong and I'm specific about it, I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant for I've done very foolishly. Please take it away. Then the Lord spoke to Gad. Um, he's a prophet, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, saying, thus says the Lord, um, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. There's something about um, his prayer that was answered in such a way that I'll give you three options, but I can't take away the the results or the punishment there. There has to be something that you learn from this. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, James tells us and gives us some really good stuff here. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. you got to resist. We've got to put up some resistance to, to, to Satan, to the devil. James says, if you resist him, he'll flee from you. Um, and then draw near to God, though. You can't just be out there fighting Satan. You've got you to gotta shove and get back to God where you're supposed to be. Draw near to him. Because the only way you run into the devil is when you're, well, when you're near him and not near God, apparently. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. And then cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're going back and forth. You've got two ideas going on in your head, the fleshy ideas and the spiritual ideas. Stop being double-minded. Be spiritual. Be holy, for I am holy. I mean, that is a, that is a theme that's throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Just be holy. Just be spiritual. Seek the things that are above And all the things down here that you worry about that are fleshy, those will be taken care of. But if you take care of the spiritual things like I've asked you to do, 
I'll take care of all the physical things that you're asking me for. Resist him. Resist. In fact, one point, oh, who was it that said it? You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Jesus? No, Paul. Paul said that. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. I don't mean to smile, but that's some serious resisting. I resist by pulling that thought captive or um, I'm really going to do this or I'm really going to do that. But resisting Satan, resisting the flesh to bloodshed, I'm willing to die for this. I'm willing to die for holiness. I'm willing to die to be close to Jesus and not far away from him. I'm willing to put everything on the line. I'm willing to lose my job right now to stay close to God if it is a temptation and pulling me away. I'm willing to give it all up because I want Jesus and nothing else and no more. And that's all I'm focused on. You've not resisted to bloodshed. Interesting. Jesus was tempted like David was here. In a different way, though, because all that can be thrown out is bait, and this gives us an idea as to what happens. Satan doesn't give us thoughts. Some people debate that, but we don't have any scriptures that tell us that Satan puts thoughts into our heads. You have three adversaries, the world, which is trying to get you to do what they want you to do. That's flesh to flesh. You have your own flesh you have to deal with, which is that thought and the voice inside of your head telling you to do wrong things. That ain't Satan. You get to own that. I have a flesh that wants to do that. And then I have the devil that throws out bait to get my flesh to act upon those things it's been thinking about. And here's the example. Jesus is brought out into the the desert. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 1. He's filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. What did he do to prepare for the battle? He starved his flesh. It's interesting. I don't don't advocate 40 days without food. That's between you and the Lord. Good luck. Um, But I do understand what Jesus was in for, and he understood what he was in for. I'm going to starve my flesh so there's no, I'm going to master it. I'm going to be the master of my flesh. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Let's start with hunger, since you're so hungry. How about uh, just make some bread? I mean, you don't even have to go into town. No one would know. Poof. You know? And he just says, Yeah, I could. I mean, he doesn't dispute the fact that he could do it. He just says, No, I don't need that. What I need is the Word of God. Hmm. I mean, he's doing exactly what he's asked us to do. You keep your vertical relationship with God right, and he'll take care of it. You're going to get food later. The angels are going to come and minister to him. He's going to be able to eat again. But for now, right now, what's needful is not for me and my hunger to be satisfied. What's needful for me is God's Word. And I will take that over a loaf of bread to get my flesh to shut up all day long. He took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Big slideshow of all the kingdoms. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. 
for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And that's not a lie. He's stating the truth because Jesus doesn't say, that's not true. You're a liar. You're the devil. No, he has that ability. He's the prince of the power of the air. We just read that. That deed to the earth was given over at Adam and Eve at the garden. When they ate of that fruit, they decided to give him the authority. They were to have dominion over all the earth. They handed that dominion over to Satan at that point. That's what the scroll is in Revelation, Jesus taking back that dominion. I can give you all this stuff. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. There's that second way. There's that, let this cup pass from me. There's another way. You can have all the kingdoms, but that's not the goal. Jesus wasn't after all the kingdoms. He was after the people. I'm not giving you the people. I'm not giving you the souls. We're all still going to hell. I'm just giving you the authority and the power now over all these kingdoms. I can give that to you right now. You can establish your kingdom now at this first coming bypass the cross. See, Jesus knows he's coming twice. He knows there's a second coming. He knows that's when he gets the kingdoms. But he says, if you want to avoid this, we could just skip this first advent and just make it the second advent. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything, and we'll just bypass this whole time of the Gentiles thing. Hmm. And Jesus answered and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. No, I don't want that. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. They'll catch you. Jump. They'll catch you. Right in the nick of time. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It, is, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. No, I'm not jumping. I'm not going to do that. That's tempting God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. All right, I'll see you later. Lost. We think we have tough battles. That would have been a tough battle. Constant. Constant. But he shows us how it works. This is how it works. Satan throws out ideas and bait. These are actual conversations. Jesus isn't having suicidal thoughts. Jesus isn't having delusions of grandeur. Jesus isn't doubting whether he's the son of God. That's how some commentators, liberals, interpret this. That's not what's happening. This is an actual conversation. Satan shows up and takes him to the pinnacle, takes him over here. And they have this conversation, and it's external, and he's throwing out ideas and giving him options, and Jesus is throwing the Word of God back at him. It's a real battle between me walking in the Spirit or Jesus walking in the Spirit and against Satan and his temptations and his, and his barrage of bait for us. You could have all the things that you hope to get this way a much easier way. No, I won't take it. So... I'll give you three options, God says. Choose one of the three, and here's what they are. Go and tell David, he says in verse 9, Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, and says, This is what I want you to tell him. Tell him he's got three things to choose from. Verse 11, So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine, 
three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord. Well, those aren't great options. Do you want the sword of the Lord against you? Do you want your enemy against you? Or do you want a famine? Some sort of pestilence or plague kind of thing. Just a, a drought for three years. The plague of the land with the uh, um, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. That was the rest of that third option. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. I'll give you time to think about it. Oh, boy. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of, of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Well, I don't want to be judged by my enemies. I'll take, I'll take judgment from God any day, David says. I'd rather be put in your hands for three days than three months with the enemy. Mm-mm. Because our God's merciful. So, the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And don't worry, the question that we're all asking is going to be asked by David. God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. There's that mercy David was hoping for. And said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. That's enough. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven having in his hand or having yeah having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem so David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces and David said to God was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed but these sheep what have they done let your hand I pray O Lord my God be against me and my father's house but not against your people that they should be plagued I think that's the question everybody, I think, was asking. That's what I'd ask, and that's right. I'm the one that sinned. In fact, your word tells us that the man who sinned, that's whose fault. The kid is not going to be punished for the sins of the father, and the father's not going to be punished for the sins of the kid. What is happening, God said, or David says to God? Why is this happening? Because you're in leadership. Because you're in charge. Because your sins affect everybody. He's trying to teach him a lesson. This is not a fun thing to come to the realization of, is that my sin is not just my sin. My sin does affect everybody around me. My sin does bring people down. That were unintended, that were, that were uh, collateral damage to my sin. These guys are collateral. 70,000. Now, we think differently than God does, and I'm not going to justify it and make everybody feel better about it. I think the gravity of it needs to set on us for a while. And I'll tell you why. What's the big, what's the big thing right now? What's the thing we're so excited about is happening in law enforcement all over the country and all over the world? What are we so excited about that's finally something's happening about it? Human trafficking. <sighs> This is great news. 134 kids over here, 74 kids over here, and I'm happy too. Um, and then we got the Netflix thing. Everybody got the Netflix thing, right? Everybody's supposed to cancel Netflix because of cuties, the 
weird movie that has from the French director that has these tiny little girls doing things they ought not be doing on stage, gyrating and all that stuff because that's sexualizing children. And boy, that's just how it starts. That's, you know, we're all on this bandwagon. Just want to pause for a moment and let everybody let this sink in as far as how these things come out. Sex trafficking doesn't just happen. Child or child trafficking, human trafficking doesn't just happen. That is a result of a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on for a very long time. And that's the end result and the pinnacle of sin is when we begin to buy and sell people for our own pleasures. That's the end of it over there. But how did we get there? It's hard not to go. We tried to get dance lessons for Mariah here in Maryville. There ain't a place in town that doesn't do the hip-hop, that doesn't do the gyrating, that doesn't do the twerking or whatever it is that they teach little girls to do. That's sexualizing children. Well, that's just dance. That's just jazz. Most drill teams in high school, most, if not all, are far less than conservative. Well, yeah, but that's just kind of something that we... Kind of something that we, you know, we just, yeah, we got used to it. Okay, let's skip all that. What about these tiny little beauty pageants we have for these little girls that are like seven or four or three or two years old with bikini contests? You know that happens? Well, yeah, but that's just moms and the girls. We don't let any guys in there. It doesn't matter. You're preparing the victim. You're preparing the victim. You're getting that little girl at the age of two or three years old in this beauty pageant walking around with so much makeup on that it would embarrass a whore. And she's dancing around and she's doing things in front of this walking a catwalk. And we can't figure out how we got human trafficking. Good thing we're getting those guys. Please. We've been growing them. We're growing perverted boys. We're growing perverted girls. And it's culminating in a society full of Sodom and Gomorrah at its end. All of our sins have consequences. All of our sins end up someplace. It's a spiritual battle. I just drew back the curtain on a tiny little thing that happens to be popular today. Human trafficking. There is so much going on. So much spiritual warfare. We're so in it, we become so numb to it, I don't think we realize it. We th- I forgot to mention today is life chain. At 2 o'clock, 1.45, we meet at the courthouse and we stand up and protest against abortion. Well, I don't, wanna, I don't know about... I, you don't know yet that killing babies is wrong? Of course it's wrong. But if we can kill babies, if we can sexualize three-year-olds, have them walk a catwalk and wiggle and do their thing in their swimsuits, and then we can go ahead and do this, that, and the other thing all the way up, and we're surprised when they get abducted by the guys that have been watching them this whole time. we got to be careful. The battle is raging all around us, and it's a spiritual battle, and we have to fight. It can't be normal. It can't be okay. David is realizing that his counting of the people has destroyed 70,000 people. My sins in my past have left a wake of destruction.
Verse 18, therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So here's what we do after we realize that this has happened. I want you to build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor here. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. This is interesting. That's a whole other Bible study. And I don't know why he doesn't run and hide because everybody that comes in contact with an angel seems to be terrified, petrified, and any other odds you know, that you can have. But Ornan says, yeah, it's an angel. We've got work to do. I, I don't know how he's, I just keep working. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price, no bartering, we're not going to haggle, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, take it to yourself. And let my Lord, the king, do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I, I give it all. What a great guy. And maybe that's why he doesn't duck and hide. Maybe he's got a clean conscience. Maybe he sees the angel, he sees what's going on. And mm-hmm. It makes sense to him. I don't know. But I like that. No, you don't have to pay me for it. Are you kidding me? He's doing what he's supposed to do. Just take it. There's no hidden agenda here. But King David recognizes a problem with that. King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. It's a really good price, by the way. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to his sheath. Okay, you can stop now. Pays him the full price. That's amazing. And of course, that's what you need to underline right there if you mark in your Bibles. That which cost me nothing. I'm not going to offer God something that didn't cost me something. The widow's might is the greatest story. People are dumping money in. Millionaires dumping in $100,000 worth or whatever. And Jesus doesn't take notice to the trumpets and to the amounts and to the collection and the overflowing and the sounds. But what he does pick up on is the widow's might, which is Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And here's why. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Well, that makes sense. They can afford it. But it doesn't cost them anything. It's a minor inconvenience. It's, it's less than what they have. If I've got a million dollars and I drop in a hundred thousand, I'm still okay. I'm still okay. That's not what he notices. That's not what it's about. It has nothing to do with the amount. It's what it's costing each person. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make uh, quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. 
For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. It cost her everything. But it was worth it to her. It's nothing for me to put my last bit of money into that. You'd think Jesus would run and go grab maybe 20 coins out of there and go rush up behind her and give it to her and make sure she got her tenfold. But that's not what it's about because she didn't care about a tenfold blessing. She didn't care about what was coming back to her. It wasn't an investment. It was her heart. I love God. He's always taking care of me. And I've been here before maybe. Maybe she lives her whole life that way. Whatever's left at the end on Saturday, let's see what happens. Love you, God. Thanks for taking care of me this week. You know, it's beautiful. David understood that. No, this can't cost me nothing. I can't take a gift and give it to God. That's re-gifting. It's wrong. It's wrong when we do it. It's wrong when, when they do it. <laughs> it's probably the most convicting thing I said all day, right? You're all like, oh, man. I got a lot of repentant letters to write to my friends and family. No, you know what I mean. David says, it's got to come from my heart. It has to cost me something. It has to be something that's dear to me. It has to... Now, I don't know that 600 shekels of gold was in any way even a drop in the bucket for David. Probably not. Probably not. But he definitely didn't want to give God something that was free to him. He says, no, 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 no. I'm going to to make sure... This is a struggle for people. Money is a struggle for people. It, it masters them. It does. Um, and, and, and you know if you're that person because you know you're mastered by it. It's hard for you. Money is a focus. It is a, it's something I think about. And the idea of this or the idea of that just makes me take a deep breath. There's something wrong. And I don't, it's not about, where or what you do with it, it's, it's just a heart that needs to change and ask God to change that. Because it's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to live, to have your heart in that place. It's just, it's just not healthy for you, spiritually speaking, to have that thought or constant thought. The widow's might, if the widow doesn't have that thought, Jesus says, I saw that. He loved it. It's pleasing to him. So the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar, the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before uh, before it, to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. That's where he was standing, apparently, or as close. No, 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 I'm not going anywhere. We're going to do it right here. And so that's where we close today. I went a little bit long. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter. It's such a great time for us that we see David's heart on the matter, and we see Satan showing up, and we're more aware today than we have been maybe all week long that we are in a spiritual battle and always are. And there are subtle ways it creeps in and that we, we stop noticing. And we start just ascribing these strange things that happen to us as coincidence or just the way life is when actually we're under attack. 
Lord, help us to pray like we're under attack. Help us to put on the armor of God like we are under attack. Lord, help us to do the things we're supposed to do, to not be moved by Satan, to recognize temptation, to take the way of escape, to consider the things of God and the, his, your kingdom, Lord, far more important than the things of this world, and to trust you with the things of this world, that you'll take care of us. Help us to just draw near to you and to resist this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.